Luke chapter 8. Please turn there to the testimony of Dr. Luke. It is not the gospel of Luke. It's the gospel according to Luke. It's only one gospel. Luke does not have one, and his name is Jesus. So the gospel according to Luke is where we are. We find ourselves in uh, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Thank you, Lord, for reading the passage for us. Uh, our series is called Mission to the World uh, by the inspiration superintendent of the Holy Spirit. Um, Dr. Luke compiled an eyewitness testimony of the ministry of Jesus and how his love and his mercy and his compassion uh, has come to the lives of all kinds of people. We've been seeing that, the hurting, the downcast, the rejected, the hated, the marginalized. All those people in Jesus' culture, we see Jesus reaching out. We'll see a demoniac today. He has come not only as the promised Messiah that Israel has been promised, but he has come to, to really bring salvation to sinners of all nations, all tongues, and all tribes. And Luke really hones in on that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God himself. And what we're going to see today in our text is just that. You're going to see a healing of a Gentile man, a non-Jew, a uh, Gentile man who's possessed by many demons. It's important to remember that as we're walking with Jesus, we're seeing these miracles, this power and authority of Jesus, that he's not doing, I mentioned this last week, as just a magician trying to get an applaud. No, he's, he's pointing, like signposts, pointing to the person of Christ and the mission of Christ. As Jesus displays his kingly power and authority over all creation, he is validating, he is authenticating that he is king of kings, lord of lords. He has come to inaugurate his eternal kingdom. You saw that back when he read in Isaiah 61, uh, a scroll back in the uh, beginning of Luke. Okay, And our response is to what? As we see the power and authority of majesty of Jesus to repent, which means to turn from sin, trying to be our own saviors and lords of our own lives. And turn to Jesus. He will go to the cross. He will give his life as a ransom for many. He'll live a perfect life. He'll die a substitutionary death. He will rise from the dead. And because of that, he calls people to himself. He'll forgive you of your sins and give you new life. That's the gospel. And as we continue to study, we've come to the place in Jesus' ministry. He's in Galilee. We've talked about that. Where he's very, very, very busy. Very busy. He's been healing Diseases, preaching the kingdom of God has come. Repent, believe the gospel. He's been uh, healing not only uh, illnesses, diseases. He is, he is uh, setting people free from um, uncleanliness. He even raised, we saw, uh, a young boy from the dead. He's done some uh, releasing of demons that were, were possessed. Uh, people were possessed by these demons. And the crowds are growing. We saw that from village to village. These crowds are coming together. But also his opposition is intensifying. We'll see that over the next few weeks. Crowds are growing. Opposition is intensifying. And he's also been teaching his followers what it means to be a disciple. He's a call to discipleship. We saw that many times. Last week in our text, just a quick review, the disciples not only saw this, this glorious display of divine authority and power, but I believe he was teaching them and us a valuable lesson. They and we learn that Jesus not only was fully human and exhausted in a boat, but he's also fully God, the agent of creation, and he speaks and rebukes the extreme winds and the raging seas, and they obey his command. And we look at Genesis 1, how God spoke. They heard that voice before. We learn that Jesus has infinite power to tell the wind and the seas to stop, or Luther said, shut up, be still. And we learn that because Jesus has the infinite power 
to over the seas and the raging storms. He also has infinite power over the storms that come into our lives. And we can recognize that they are purposeful because the storms of our lives and the things of our difficulties that we face are under the sovereign control of God. Now look with me again at verse 25 at the end of that narrative from last week. He said to them, where is your faith? Okay, rebukes the sin and the waves. All right, remember they woke him up from a deep sleep. He's exhausted, violent windstorm, they're on the sea, they're, 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 they're afraid of perishing, they awaken him, he calms the sea, calms the, the, the actual wind stops and the sea goes flat, the kind of authority he has. And they said, he says, Where, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, okay? So the, the, the fear they had of the storm now turns into this transcendent awe of Jesus. And they asked this question. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? That's the question. We're actually going to get that answer today in our text. And it's not going to come from the apostles. It's actually going to come from a demon. Now, on a side note, we've been talking about how back in this day when this gospel was written, Luke, that it's not a legend, it's not folklore. They did not write that way. So no matter what your professor tells you, they did not write folklore and legends and urban tales in this manner. Everyone who read this in that day knew that it was an eyewitness account, a historical event that was being written. Think about this. Who in their right mind would want to start a movement, a religious movement, and have the apostles, those in authority, those that Jesus is sending, the shakers and movers of this movement, be confused and scared on a boat and have a demon speak and say exactly who Jesus is. Nobody. Just another point. The gospel account is historical and reliable and, of course, authoritative. Nobody would do that. That's, why we, that's one another reason why we know the Scripture is true. So, that's free. You don't have to pay me for that one. That was just an extra added. Okay? Four things. When we get to number four, we're going to go right into our conclusion and uh, response. So, don't, don't be like, all right, he's getting to number four now. Number one, confrontation. We're going to deal with this in four different movements and within the confrontation that Jesus has with with, uh, and with people. Number one, with demon-possessed man. Number two, with the demons. And number three, confrontation with the townspeople. And number four, confrontation with this new man sitting at Jesus' feet. So that's where we're going. Number one, confrontation with demons. So after, context here, so after many uh, uh, days of ministry, Jesus is getting away, right? He's going, he's got large crowds. He's going from the western side of the lake uh, in Galilee. And he's going to the southern shore, eastern shore to get some rest. We saw that last week, to recharge, all right? Then get back in the game. He needs rest like the rest of us needs rest. Sometimes, you know what? We just need to take a break and to sit aside and just rest. Some of us just need rest. Some of us have been resting too long and need to do something, but that's a whole other story, okay? The town is called Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. It's in a larger area, it is important, called Decapolis. The Greek word decap meaning ten. Polis city, the ten cities, the Gentile city, non-Jewish city. Uh, in that part of the world, and here the Jewish Messiah is going to this Gentile region to get some rest. But unfortunately for Jesus and his disciples, as the boat pulls up to the shore, they're not met by a party planner, but by a demon-possessed man. Remember, he's waking from a, from a deep sleep on the boat because they were afraid. He'd he not got a whole lot of rest. And when you can imagine the disciples and Jesus seeing land, 
Who knows, maybe the sun was just coming up. We don't know. And they're all thinking, man, it looks quiet. Let's break out the lounge chairs, right? A little sun lotion, Got some suntan, some floaties. Man, we're going to just take some time to rest. The text tells us that as soon as they stepped out on the land, a wild, crazy, demon-possessed man comes running down the hill at Jesus' feet. I learned this week that in that area, there were the, the shores would come, there was a shoreline, and then there was a, a, a hill or a top of the mountain where they would have the grave size and the graves and the, and the tombs up on this, on this hill. And that's where this demon-possessed man was living. So he must have saw the boat coming to the shore, run down the hill to meet Jesus and his disciples. We, this, this incident, like last week, is in all three of the synoptic gospels, meaning similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Listen to what Mark adds to this incident. He says, night and day among the tombs, this demonic man was, and on the mountain he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him. Right? The man is naked, lives among the dead in the cemetery. The dead is, is, is a, a sign of, of complete madness in that God-forsaken place. And if that's not enough, verse 29 in Luke chapter 8, he has superhuman strength. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. He would break them, by, uh, break them driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus already showed power over demonic oppression, chapter 4 and verse 6. But this man's condition is probably maybe one of the most vivid and, and pathetic pictures we have in all of Scripture of what it looks like to be that kind afflicted by demons. By demons. He, he was alone, alienated from everyone. He was dangerous, cutting himself. Now, what I want to do is I just want to stop for a moment and just walk with you a little bit in, in a slightly different direction. Because there's some people, maybe you're here today, and you're thinking, ah, demons, the devil, Satan, the enemy. Yeah, 2,000 years ago, they weren't all that bright. You know, every kind of disorder was it back in that day. You know, any kind of emotional or psychological disorder, they would say it was demons. Well, I'm here to tell you on the authority of Scripture that Satan and demons are real. Demons, spirits, uh, excuse me, Scripture tells us are fallen angels. Although they were created as angels for the glory of God, they rebelled with Satan and they fell into sin. And they are, they are, their, their plan really is to get you to believe that they don't exist, right? One extreme is they don't exist. We don't have evil in the old world, in the world at all. And the other, the other extreme is, you know, everything is his fault. And, and, and I don't know what to do. I'm stuck in fear. And to deny that Satan and demons exist is actually to deny the authority and validity of God's word and, now listen, the ministry of Jesus who cast out demons. The scriptures reveal that Satan is real and his followers are real. And they make decisions. They, they're, they're, they're there to frighten and to deceive. The Bible says to kill, to steal, kill, and destroy. His primary weapon we know is deception. That's why Jesus said that he, Satan, and his demons was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He lies. He speaks of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. And then Jesus goes on to say again in John, if you abide in my word, 
you're truly my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you see this opposition of lying and truth. That's why Peter says, prepare your minds in the truth of the word for action. It's the battleground of where the enemy comes. And many times it's in the mind, in the sinful patterns of thinking where strongholds take hold, and only God's truth, God's word, God's spirit can break the stronghold. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. How? We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, the Bible does talk about the difference between disease and insanity and mental illness, demon possession. But one of the problems believing that the enemy doesn't exist at all is we start dividing people up in different pieces. In other words, they have, we're people with a body, we're people with emotions, a mind, thoughts, and we are spiritual beings. There are evil spirits in the world that prey on human weakness. And the problem is if we don't deal with the spiritual aspect of it, we either, either we're not complete in our care or we're deceived at best, at worst, really. You've got to deal with the whole person, with their mind, their heart, their emotion, all that going on. You know, the Bible indicates that Satan does have power. He has power for miracles. He has power for false prophets and false signs. But Dr. Neil Anderson says something right. I shared this with you before. He said this. It's not a power encounter, but a truth encounter. It's not like you see in the movies where good and evil are fighting, we're not sure who wins. That's not the truth. That's what Satan would want you to believe. God is omnipotent. God's power, excuse me, the enemy's power is on a leash under God's control. Jesus said, uh, John said in John 1, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, disarm his power over us. Colossians 2, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So the believer has this responsibility to choose truth. And we choose to believe a lie, and we got these old tapes playing in our head, then guess what? We're not going to be possessed because we belong to God, but we can be deceived. Like Peter, the apostle, remember? Lord, the Jesus says, look, I'm going to the cross. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. He's like, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of man. You got the things of man, not the things of God. So there's that deception. So a believer can't be possessed because we belong to God, but we can be deceived with what we're listening to. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about resting in the word of God, having a worldview that comes from scripture. So we can be deceived. Now, unbelievers, yes, they can be, as we see here, um, can be possessed and, and, and really deceived according to our text. But what Christians are to do is not to panic in fear, but to firmly resist them. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist the enemy, firm in your faith. James says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you notice what he's saying? Christians need, the first thing they do is to submit to God. Bow their knee to the king of kings. Before we stand up against the enemy, we bow to Christ. Satan is, as I said, is not omnipotent, all-powerful. God is. Satan is not omniscient, all-knowing. God is. Satan is omnipresent, not omnipresent. God is. Okay? So we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to recognize what the Scripture says about the enemy. Okay? So that side note, look what he says in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, it's very interesting, 
He cried out and fell down before him and said with what? A loud voice. I'm not going to yell at you today. But it wasn't like, hey, what have you to do with me? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And although we know that the man spoke these words according to Scripture, we know that there was an enemy that was speaking as well. Confrontation with a demon. What have you do to me literally means, what do you want with me? Why are you meddling with me? What what do I have to do with you? Now, I'm not going to say that anyone in this room is demon-possessed, although you might be. We saw that in chapter 4. There was a demon in the synagogue, in church. But let me ask you this question, just to think it through. How many people are hearing the call of Jesus to repent of your sins, to recognize your brokenness and your sinfulness before a holy God, and to trust Jesus, to place your faith in him, and your response is, why are you telling me that? What do you want with me? Why are you meddling with me? What is that business to you, what I do? And if you recognize that crime, it may not be demon-possessed, but that's deception. You're being deceived. Jesus sees evil and calls it out. The good news is he forgives sins and he gives us peace as he does this man. So don't hold on to your sin. Don't listen to that enemy's voice. Turn, trust, rest, and run to Jesus this morning. Now look at the two acknowledgments. One is he says he's son of the most high God. Uh, that, uh, that declaration that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God is the revelatory answer to the question we saw earlier. Who's this man? Who is this guy that the winds and the seas obey him? He's the Son of the same nature of the Most High God. It was a Jewish expression uh, describing and emphasizing the transcendence and exaltation of God, of Israel's gods over pagans, over pagan uh, goddesses and rival powers. He is the Most Holy God. And here Jesus is is the son of the same nature. He also is the incarnate God, unmatched, unparalleled holiness of God. The the Gentiles would use that term too as well, son of the most holy God, as as a designation of, of Israel's transcendent and holy one. Here Jesus, who is he? He's son of the most high God. Number two, look what else uh, um, Jesus, uh, that's acknowledged in this text. Jesus has authority and ability to exercise judgment. Look what it says. The demons say, you are the son of the most high God. I beg you, I'm begging you, Jesus, do not torment me. Matthew says this, have you come here to torment us before the time? When this madman or this demon-possessed man falls at the feet of Jesus, yes, there's an act of reverence, but they don't love Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They hate Jesus. But he's God in the flesh, and they fall before him. Philippians 2, we see that. Because of the, the condescension of Jesus taking on humanity and his brutal crucifixion on the cross where he atoned for sin, the Bible says God the Father has highly exalted, mega exalted him so that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, some will do it with joy and tears and thanksgiving, gratitude, and some will do it to their damnation. 
but it will be done. It will be done. They fail to recognize his lordship, and they're saying, don't torment me. Don't cast me into hell now. They hate Jesus. They despise him. They oppose him, and they make this request, don't, 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 don't torment me now. Demons have authority, but Jesus has ultimate authority. So they're asking permissions. You know what? They know they're going. I want you to see that in the text. They know that hell, the conscious, literal, eternal place of just judgment awaits them. And they're asking, not now. Verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. That's, that's a spoiler alert. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> that's Luke's way of saying this is going to happen. For many a time it had seized him. He has kept under guard, bound with chains, shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert, right? So this uncleanliness, this demonization affect the body and the mind, and this man was not in his right mind. His body was all twisted, and he's got this massive superhuman demonic strength, breaking chains. They can't even hold him down. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, begged him again. Not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a herd of pigs were feeding on the hillside and they begged him, there again, he's begging Jesus, let me enter into them. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs and herd, rushed down the steep bank onto the lake and they were drowned. Now, there's a lot of ink spilt in the fact that the demon's name was Legion. For Legion in that day in the Roman army was a commander of like 6,000 soldiers. Okay, so some say, let, we're taking it literally, 6,000 demons in this man. Man, that's a lot of demons, right? It's like my house at Christmas, there's no room. I don't think that's, I think it's hyperbole. Luke says, for many demons had entered him. The point is that it's serious. The point is that the man's in trouble. The point is that he is heavily, demonically oppressed, possessed. And the point is, this is what Jesus is up against. My name is Legion. Of course, no big deal for the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of the Most High God. And again, they know that they were going into their final place of torment, that that, that final place is awaiting them. Look at verse 31. They beg them again, don't send me into the abyss, the place of the dead. The bottomless pit, Revelation tells us. Demons know that they are defeated. They know that their final doom is judgment, eternal torment. So they tremble with fear. They recognize who Jesus is and they tremble with fear. They are not singing the song with the grateful dead. At least I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. Right? They think that's funny. Demons know the truth and they don't think it's very funny. They hate Jesus. They hate and fear hell. And Jesus looks around and, and, he, and he honors their plea. And that's mind-boggling, I know. Why would he do that? When you see him, you could ask him. Um, I won't place you in eternal judgment yet, just yet. And he, and he allows the demons to enter into the pigs, although it's short-lived. They apparently uh, get startled and they run headlong off the cliff into the sea. The poor little piggies drowning in the sea. But Jesus didn't do that. The demons did it, right? We all like to say, you know, that God is sovereign. We're responsible. Well, Demons are responsible too. Michael McKinley in his commentary says this, if a man conquers with a mere word a posse, a posse of demons that couldn't be restrained by change, he doesn't need to defend his actions, end quote. 
And think, I mean, it, would have been, it wouldn't have been so good if he released the demons and, you know, hey, I got a crowd of 6,000 people behind me. Why don't you just choose somebody, right? That wouldn't go well. But why not go into what the Bible says and what the Jewish law says, an unclean animal, right? But listen to this. With all kidding aside, by allowing the demons to enter into these pigs, Jesus elevated this wine to the most famous pigs in history. Even more famous than the three little piggies. Right? These pigs lived and died to the glory of God. Jesus cast them out just as easily as he stopped the sea and the waves. There's some that go to great length, and maybe, maybe you're here today, and I know a lot of people go to great length uh, to uh, beyond the call of duty for a pet. I get it. I mean, you read this today, and there's a whole different culture today than it was back then. And God wants us to love people, love our animals, man. I'm good with that. Love those little puppies. Give to the, to the shelters. But if his image bearers are suffering, then healing, hope, and help is, to them is a priority. And I know you might want to kill me because I said that, but that's okay. Because if you come to my house and you want money for the puppies or the wells or whatever like that, that's fine. We've got to care for God's creation. I get that. But my first question is going to be, where do you stand on abortion? Don't tell me you want to save the pets and murder our children. I'll tell you that right now. Just being honest with you, okay? So, animals sacrificed, sake of demon-possessed man, which we see that in, in the work of atonement, not that they gave their life, blood for the, the man, but that something must die, something must live. These pigs are given over, drowned, and now this man is sitting, and he has been healed. Confrontation, verse 34. Herdsmen saw what happened. Luke says there was a herd of pigs. Mark says there were 2,000 pigs that were on the hillside, that rushed down the hill into their death. And the people aren't happy. Listen, the town people are not happy about what happened. All their bacon, all their pulled pork, all their pork chops, all their backyard pig roasts are not happening that year. It's not happening. It's not every day this uncontrolled demoniac man gets healed and this mass suicide goes on with pigs. So everybody wants to hear what, what's going on here. They want to see what happened. And next thing you know, Jesus is confronted with an angry mob. They all came out and they see the pigs floating in the water dead. The demon-possessed man healed alive and well. They weren't afraid of him. They were afraid of Jesus to ask him to leave. Verse 35 says they were afraid seeing the man in his right mind. Verse 37, it says that when the people told him to leave, it says they were, look, seized with great fear. Seized with great fear. This wasn't a fear in the sense of worship. This is a fear in the sense of trembling and terror. This is a fear that does not lead to faith, but a faith that wants nothing to do with Jesus. That kind of fear. Get away from me. Why? Perhaps the fear was the economic loss would get even worse if he stuck around. They're clearly more at home with the, the presence of a demoniac man than they are with the presence of King Jesus who drives away evil. Their fear may have been superstitious. We don't know. I think, though, they were afraid. I think we could say they were afraid, at least to, to some degree, that this man has the ability to change someone's life the way he did. And that's something they could not grasp. They could not grasp. Like, what just happened? Get away from me. What you find in the Gospel of Luke and all the other four accounts of the Gospel 
is two groups of people that, that want nothing to do with Jesus. You have the religious people, Bible thumpers. They want Jesus dead. And then you have here the Gentiles and non-Jews, and they see Jesus, his power and his authority. He's the son of the Most High God, and they want to get rid of him. Why? Here's the realities. These groups show us that there are two ways that people try to avoid and dismiss Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and remain, listen, in control of their own lives. Some people seek to be their own saviors and their own Lord through worldly pride. No one tells me what to do. I'll do what's right. I'll do what's wrong. I make that decision, just like Adam. I will be my own God. I'll do what I want. I'm not going to obey. But there are moral people and religious people, Bible-thumping people, Bible people that believe that they are good and right because of all that they do. I'm more moral, I'm more obedient, I'm more spiritual than everyone else. I give money, I pray, uh, God has, you know, owes me a happy life, I've earned it. See, one group rejects Jesus because he's a threat to their own power and authority. The other group rejects Jesus and the gospel. Why? Because it exposes the utter sinfulness and the desperate need that all of us have for the kindness and goodness and grace and mercy of God. You see, both want control and both are unwilling to yield to Jesus. The gospel is, why? I say it all the time. We obey because we have been rescued and saved, right? We don't work our way into trying to work real hard to get God to love and accept us. No, Jesus died as our sacrifice. He lived that perfect life we could never do. And because he died in our place, rose in our place, lived that perfect life in our place, we have been redeemed, forgiven, and therefore, what do we do? We, we follow Christ. And let me tell you, whatever you're resting in, and whatever you're trusting in, to give you a value and love and acceptance, your personhood, it's what's controlling you. Look, if you're seeking power, power is controlling you. If you are seeking money, money is controlling you. If you're seeking, ultimately, to be accepted, you're being controlled by the people you want to please. One thing is certain, no one controls themselves. Whatever the lordship of our lives, whatever it is that is that the, top, the top thing that we worship is what has control over us. Listen to what the late Tim Keller said. He said, whatever is in the center of your life, the main thing you're seeking, the thing you think, if I have that, then I'll be okay, then I'll be happy, then I know what I am. That is your idol. And the fear that we see here that drove the Gerasenes was financial security, control of their own lives over the spiritual freedom that Jesus brings. These folks are not scared of the demonized guy anymore. They're scared of Christ. I mean, how do you move from this fear of the power and authority of Jesus? How do you move from the fear of, 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 that controls you to, to, to the fear of the Lord, to, to the worship of our God? To, to, to yield to the power and the love of Jesus. How do you go from wanting to be your own Lord and Savior and yet move to resting in, relying on the power and sovereignty of God? Well, I'm glad that you asked. I'm going to tell you this. When you get to the end of Luke or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you get to the end of the ministry of Jesus, what do you find? You find Jesus stripped and nailed to a cross. At the end of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, what you find Jesus bleeding and crying out. At the end of the book of Luke, what you find is that Jesus is driven into the tombs, actually into the tomb. 
Jesus Christ looks and takes on evil and sin and death on himself. He dies on the cross. He pays the penalty for our sins so that he can wipe out evil without wiping us out. If you understand that, if you take the gospel deeply into your heart, the cost of Jesus to deliver us from sin, from evil, from idols, from those things that will never satisfy, from the things that will never love us unconditionally, you will go from fear of those things to faith in God. When you drink deeply of the gospel, when you see Jesus willing to be naked and driven to the tomb for you, you'll see how much he loves you. The value is placed on your life. You won't need to fear losing finances, careers, relationship, prized possessions. You don't have to look at anything else and say, if I have that, I'm someone. It's by seeing the infinite cost of Jesus. The price he paid in order to defeat evil that defeats fear in your own life. When you see yourselves like this man. Not exactly like him, but the similar effects that sin has on our life, exposing us naked in our guilt, alienation from sin from one another, makes us violent sometimes in our actions, spiritually speaking, walking among the dead. We're all that way outside of Christ. And it's only when we see the cost when we'll see his love. Only when we see him driven to the cross, into the tomb, Crying out, bleeding, forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we can be received. When you see that, you'll see the ultimate treasure. And the fear of losing will turn to faith in Christ. Keith and Getty, Keith and Christine Getty sing a song, My Worth is Not My Own. Now listen to the words. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or loss, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Family, when you treasure Jesus as Savior and Lord who died to conquer sin and evil, rose again to forgive sin, to bring new life, your career is just a career. Your, your, your righteousness is in Christ. Your money is the way in which you bring God glory. Your relationships are under check because you see the beauty and satisfaction and the glory of God. Those things are not your glory. Those things are not your beauty, but Jesus is the infinite beauty. And he'll destroy those evils in our lives. He'll destroy that. He'll put everything in perspective when we treasure him among all earthly treasures. Then we won't say to Jesus, get in the boat and leave. We'll bow down and worship him as the one true God. Lastly, confrontation with the new man. Again, verse 35. And ver I think I have it up there. Okay, verse 38. This guy's sitting there, right? He's shaved, cologne on, bathed, dressed, sitting at Jesus' feet, taking notes. Like, what happened to that guy? Family, Jesus changes people. I praise God he does. Praise God he does. No one is beyond the grace of God. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you're alive, and I hope you're in the room, you are. There's hope because Jesus is alive. There's hope that Jesus transforms and changes life. There's hope that he may even change your life in an instant. People that, that say, you know what, you're beyond hope. No, they're not. 
Because Jesus changes lives. Now, Dr. Luke, in his description here, in, in his accounts, identifies the demonic man in verse 36 with a Greek word that means healed. Some of your translations have healed. Some of your translations might have the word saved. It comes from that word, salvation. I, I, I think both is mentioned here, and both is meant here, that he's healed and redeemed. What a complete reversal. Think about this. The man had many demons, and now what? All the demons are gone. He was naked wearing nothing. Now he is fully clothed. He lived among the tombs. Now Jesus tells him to go home. He's confronted Jesus, yelling at him, wanting nothing to do with him. Verse 28, now he's, he's comfortable. He's sitting in the presence of Jesus at his feet. The demon seized him and he was out of control. Now he's what? In his right mind, verse 35. Amazing. The man, wretched, rejected, condemned, living among the dead, is exhibit A of the power of Jesus. The transforming, peaceful, loving power of Jesus. <laughs> verse 38. The man from whom the demons had had gone begged, right? He's being begged all over the place, begged that he might be with him, all right? You guys are leaving? I'm not staying back in this town. They want to kill me back here. <laughs> they're, they're mad at you, they're mad at me. I'm going with you. Make some room. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. Verse 39. No. Return to your home. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Go home. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much who did? Jesus. Did you catch that? Return your home, declare how much what God has done for you. He goes home and tells everybody what Jesus has done, right? He gets it. The God man. The power and authority of Jesus. Son of the most holy God. Jesus calls him in. Sets him free. Delivers him, forgives him covers his shame by grace alone through faith alone and then what does he do he sends him out as a missionary sends him on the mission the missio day the mission of god as the father sent me jesus says, so i'm sending you jesus had come he had undone satan's work he restored this man this disfigured dude this ex-demoniac was now rational controlled at peace and more importantly he's in communion with god such transformation can only happen through the power of God. And we see this, we, you see this again, this contrast between the, 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 the herdsmen, the hog farmers, the town, and, and this man. Both of them went away and told what happened. Listen, you're not going to believe what's going on. One said, let's get him out of here. And the other one said, no, I'm giving glory to God. I'm going to tell you what Jesus can do. You see the contrast there. The town cared more about their precious pigs than they cared about the priceless work of Christ and the transformation by grace. That's sad. And notice the gospel witness did not start overseas, it started at home. Not that we, you know, not that we shouldn't go. Many gospel partners that are all over the world. The first thing he tells them is go home, man, be a witness 
to your family. Be a witness to your community. Be a witness to, the, to those in the baseball field, in the supermarket, the ones that you deal with every day, or at least before you were living in the tomb. But go home. Sometimes that could be the hardest place, right? Come on, everybody. Yeah, that's the hardest place. I almost want to go 6,000 miles away. No one knows me. No, he says, go home. That's usually the first calling. Go home. He was not only saved from something. Listen, family, he was saved to something. Discipleship and mission. You see, Moses, go back to Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Paul, the apostles, are all called into faith and then sent out. What a testimony, though. Can you imagine? You got, i got to tell you what happened to me today. <laughs> I'm up on a hill yelling, screaming, cutting. I mean, like I'm naked running around, and, and, and I feel great today. I feel real. Well, how did that happen? Wow. Yeah. I was streaking among the dead one day, and I was, you know, <laughs> I saw a boat coming. I'm like, let me go down and terrorize them. And it was Jesus. <laughs> Next thing I know. I'm at his feet, listening to the master, soaking in the truth of the gospel, being taught the truth, and you're not going to believe this. He gave me another purpose to live, the only purpose to live, to glorify God in sharing the gospel. Wow, that was today, just an hour ago. See, everyone and anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ has a wonderful story to tell. What has God done in your life? Some of you come through a hard background. I know I did. Some of you have not. But let me tell you, the stories may change a little bit or the, the, the particulars may change a little bit. But the story's the same. I met Jesus. He forgave me of my sins, those dark places, those things that I want no one to know, the things that I've kept to myself, the wickedness and rebellion of my heart. God just said, I forgive you. Nailed to the cross. Really? Yeah. Forgiven all my sins. He's done that through the cross where Jesus died. Tomb is empty. Raised to life. He covered us with his righteousness. So that we're no longer naked in our guilt. He gave us a right mind so that we could know him. And we could see ourselves for who we really are. This is how much Jesus has done for us. And therefore we need family. We need. He needs. We need to tell people about it. Why? So that Jesus Christ can do the same thing for them that they did for us. And that brings glory to God. Right? That brings glory to God. You want to see the infinite value and incalculable worth of God? Look to the cross. That's where it's on display. Where love and justice meet. Where my sin has been atoned for and the mercy of God has reached out for me. That's the gospel. As the band comes up, I want to ask you a question, so don't, don't turn me off yet. How will we respond? Are we going to respond like the townspeople? Are we going to respond with, well, nothing to do with you. I, I, I don't want you around. I don't want your saving power, your transforming power. Or are we going to respond with this man? Praising God and telling others what Jesus has done for me. We know what the command is. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey or to observe all that I've commanded you. And guess what? I'll be with you. You're not going alone. 
I'll be with you even to the ends of the age. There are people in our lives, they may not be demon-possessed, but they're deceived. They need the truth to be told by you and through you. Not me. I don't know them. Never met them. You have. Can we be a church that recognizes that people are suffering? Darkness is not going to win. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and wants to set people free. Will you be that mouthpiece? That's the question. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this narrative, this historical event that took place a long time ago but has taught us a lot. God, we do pray against the enemy and his deception. Lord, we want to remain on the truth of your word and have a a view of ourselves, a view of our word that comes from your scripture. For you have revealed yourself in the Holy Scripture. You have not left us as orphans. You've given us your spirit and you've given us your word And that is more than enough. So God, we just pray that uh, we would walk in truth. And God, we do pray that this week you will put some people, some folks, some some of those that in our lives that we have influence over, Lord God. Give us opportunity to speak the truth in love, to demonstrate the gospel with good deeds, to demonstrate the gospel with kindness, compassion, and then declare it, that Jesus Christ has come. He lived a life we could never live, died the death we should have died, and rose again over sin, death, and hell. And it is by faith and faith alone that our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. So, Father, help us today as we respond. In Jesus' good name, amen.